This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 345 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. And for this week, this week's episode, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've uh, never been to Arizona for the podcast yet, and I was thinking about it uh, late last year as we went through our best in beer. And we had two breweries here in Phoenix, Arizona score uh, incredibly well with our blind judges and earned spots in our uh, best beers of 2023. One of those was Arizona Wilderness Jitterbug Perfume, which scored a perfect 100 with our judges, <laughs> one of three or four. And so that is where I am today, uh, talking with Brad Miles, uh, head of production or head brewer, and uh, Nick Polly, the wood cellar manager of Arizona Wilderness. Welcome to the podcast, Brad. Thanks. Good to be here. And welcome back to the podcast, Nick. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm stoked. A little bit of explanation. Nick was at Fair Isle when we did that podcast. I think that was you know either 2020 or 2021, that kind of pandemic yeah. era where we had a remote conversation. Uh, anyway, not a crazy surprise since we've all loved your beers at Fair Isle, and uh, it's great to see that uh, back here, um, back, this is your second turn back at Arizona Wilderness, um, that uh, now here in the Wood Cellar also making beautiful beers, expressive beers, flavorful beers that uh, are moving our extremely uh, judgmental mental judge. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. So we're going to talk about two things, you know, two main topics on this episode. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the wood cellar program here, spontaneous beer, and then also using these ingredients in such creative ways like you did with Jitterbug Perfume. Um, we're also going to keep that ingredient theme going on the clean beer side and talk about the way that Arizona wilderness is using grain, um, whether it's uh, perennial grain like Kearns uh, or using Sonoran wheat, uh, some, some uh, two-row barley grown here in Arizona, um, you know, and the way that Arizona wilderness has been working with growers to sustain agriculture in this very, very dry climate, um, but to do it also efficiently that uh, uses resources in the right kind of way, but it also, you know, hits the flavor goals for the beer that you all make. We're going to talk about both of those things. Before we do that, at G&D Chillers, they always strive to build great chillers. Partner with them as you build great beer, but don't take it from me. Here's what Andy Joint of Big Grove Brewery has to say. Hey, this is Andy Joint of Big Grove Brewery. We've been using G&D Chillers from the beginning. And from our original three-and-a-half-barrel pub system up to our production brewery, we've been able to rely on G&D to provide a high-quality chiller, help us with design and layout, and provide support whenever we need it. That's right. Choose G&D Chillers on your next expansion or brewery startup and receive one free year of remote control and monitoring of your new G&D Chiller. And Turnkey Brewery Systems Production Line Design Services Retrofitting Processing Systems ProBrew can do all of this and more with any brewery, old or new, small or large. With an expansive list of breweries already served, their engineering team prides itself on providing a true turnkey solution built for your entire production line that can be easily customized to fit your operation. For more information, fill out their contact form at www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. ProBrew, brew your beer. Also, you may have heard of Old Orchard, but have you heard of their newest flavors? That's right, Berry Blend, Blood Orange, Lemonade, and Tart Cherry are the latest additions to their lineup of flavored craft juice concentrate blends. Old Orchard's R&D team can also formulate custom blends unique to your needs. To learn more and request your free samples, head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. All right, Brad, we've already heard Nick's story. And uh, if anyone wants to, to go listen to that, go back and, uh, and listen to that old Fair Isle episode. Not, not to make light of it, Nick, but uh, no, we've, already we've already covered that history. Um, why don't we talk about your history? It's, uh, sure. it's, it's quite an impressive one. Uh, stint at Firestone Walkers doing yeah. R&D. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's something. Yeah, we'll go back to the beginning. I, uh, I was always kind of interested in fermentation, but, you know, I thought I had to get that business degree. So I was in college in in Vegas for um, business, worked in the casino industry for like four or five years. And the whole time I was home brewing and just kind of got sick of it. Um, I was working 410s, so I went and got a part-time job three days a week at Refuge Brewing Company in Temecula. First day in, like I knew that was it. That's what I had to do. And I spent eight hours cleaning kegs. Um, so I just kind of grinded, got the experience, uh, 
and then told my wife, I'm like, hey, we uh, refuge uh, connected re- to the SS Brutex yeah, crew. Yeah, exactly. I was I was the guinea pig on the All SS right. Brutex systems. Yeah, that was that was interesting. Um, but yeah, and then wanted to go full time um, and just kind of started my my journey to Firestone was pretty quick. Just started looking for full time jobs. Couldn't really find one. Um, applied to Firestone on a Tuesday. Got a call back on Wednesday. Had a working interview on the next Monday, and then started the Monday after that. Um, and then I was there starting the cellar, worked my way up to the brew house, started filtering, managed the yeast for a little while. Then uh, uh, my last stint there, I was doing um, new product development and R and D. Uh, and yeah, I was there for a total of eight years, and yep. now I'm here, Arizona Wilderness. Yeah. What brought you? What brought you to Arizona? Um, a few things. You know, I wanted to kind of branch out a little bit. Um, I'd always worked. I mean, I did the small stint at Refuge, but I wanted to be more connected to the consumer of the beer um, that I was producing. And I I just had never done it. I had never been the head brewer somewhere or doing my own recipes. Like, so I just wanted that, that experience doing that. Um, I also have a young family and we were kind of looking to a little bit place, a little bit more affordable as well. Um, yeah, and well, I I known John and Pat from the Invitational and the Festival Circuit, and I saw that job pop up and applied, and then I was here. So, and the scale of Arizona Wilderness is a little bit different than the scale. A little, of a little bit Walker. different. Our yearly production is like two of their big tanks. So. <laughs> <laughs> what what is the yearly production here? Uh, we're about three thousand, between three yeah, and thirty yeah. five hundred a year. Yeah. Yeah, and it's all made out of the right now out of the brew pub here in Gilbert, Arizona. The guilt, yeah, out of that little fifteen barrel we're pumping out for now. For now, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, we have a new production spot that um, hopefully construction will start here pretty soon. Well, tell me a little bit about the the broader Arizona wilderness story. Uh, you know, the vision behind the brewery, and then uh, you know what the kind of uh, you know what was the impetus behind the brewery, and uh, you know what are some of the values that drive it today? Um, yeah, so. I don't know too much of like how John and Pat started it, yeah. um, but I know what it is now, and I think it's kind of changed a lot since then. Um, we're trying to use beer to kind of better the environment, educate people, um, create community and local um, supply chains within that community. Yeah, I think Nick could speak to it a little bit. He has a little bit more experience here, but... I do, but no one would put it, I think, better than John or Pat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, John has a certain way of speaking about things um, from the heart uh, it's awesome. But um, yeah, so I, I know that John uh, started homebrewing um, in his garage as kind of like most of us do, right? Um, and would just kind of brew up these kind of uh, wacky brews that we still kind of do to this day. There's a lot of recipes still in place that we um, brew uh, 10 years later. So um, and then he, you know, was kind of always the business side of things uh, more so than the brewing side. So he found a professional brewer in Pat where uh, the other co-owner and um I don't know how it happened, but they 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 got the money and and kind of found this perfect little spot, uh, old Brugger's Bagels here in Gilbert, and um, yeah, that's that's kind of where it all started. And uh, yeah, I want to correct you a little bit, Jamie. The uh, those two breweries that um, you were talking about are all in Gilbert, not Phoenix. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Gilbert. <laughs> Gilbert's yeah. becoming its own little brewing community. Even, so. even more crazy. Yeah, <laughs> can it get pedantic on <laughs> yeah. me about it? Okay, okay. You know, it's not Mesa, it's not Chandler, right. it's Gilbert. Gilbert. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We're in the greater Phoenix metro area. There you yeah, go. Yeah. You know, it all counts. Um, you know, but uh, but it's also nice to see. And you know, we noticed that with our best in beer this year. Um, strange concentrations, you know, of places like uh, Central North Carolina. Um, you know, we had, I think there were five different pairs of best in beers that came from similar places. And oh, I, cool. I, don't, I don't know how to explain that necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think some of it goes back to... You know, if your peers are paying attention to something, then you also start paying yeah. attention to something. And yeah. so, you know, it's like JBF entries. Well, you know, if your neighborhood across the, you know, the, across town is entering JBF and winning medals, like you kind of want to too, right? And right. I think that some of that happens with us where somebody's getting, uh, you know, beers scored highly in the magazine. You know, you want to, oh, well, we'll give it our shot too. And so maybe that's what drives some of this. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, but it's neat to see yeah. these little clusters of, uh, of cool brewing. But I think there's also something, you know, broader that 
high quality competition oh, makes yeah. everyone brew better beer. And so when you find these clusters, it's not a surprise, you know, that uh, around Firestone Walker in central California, you have all of these amazing brewers mm -hmm. making great, you have to, you mm, can't right. survive unless you make great beer. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, most of us brewers are all beer fans at heart and we're going to the place after work down the street and yeah. tasting their great beer and then taking inspiration from that so and you want to in a friendly way just try to make yours a little bit better there's nothing wrong with that and i you know and, and i think about it i mean i was reading uh, I, I mentioned it in one of my editor's notes in the magazine there's this beautiful uh, um book that they've put together about steve jobs and one of the things that you know that struck me and you know, i'm a longtime apple fanboy so this is not not anything crazy you know but what he, one of the things he said was something into the effect of, you know, quality, when you focus on making something of quality, it expresses your love of humanity. Hmm. That, uh, you know, it's not just about competition. You make something beautiful for the world because we love humanity and we love this existence that we're all creating together. And if you care about that, the thing that we're all building together, you care about making it well. And uh, you care about putting something out there that is done in that kind of that beautiful way. And so yeah. that I think speaks to the best side of craft beer, maybe not all craft beer, but the best side of craft beer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those breweries that are so focused and those brewers, not just commercial breweries, but brewers in general, so focused on making beautiful beers. And so it is, you know, these are, yeah, it is expressing this love of humanity itself. Anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm getting theoretical here, <laughs> and we should talk more about brewing. Uh, and like I said, we want to talk about uh, both the spontaneous and, and wild sides here. We're sitting right now in the wood cellar, uh, surrounded by barrels. You've got spontaneous beer bubbling over mm. that, uh, that was brewed last month that is, uh, is still fermenting away here. Um, and of course, we're going to talk about Jitterbug Perfume, the crazy beet beer, um, you know, that captured all the the beautiful, uh, you know, sweetness and earthiness of beets without any of the things that we don't like about beets. Well, we're going to talk about all of that, but first, streamline efficiency with Omega Yeast's Diacetyl Knockout Series. The DKO series is comprised of eight familiar yeast strains engineered to knock out the formation of diacetyl before it starts. The strains you know now better. Available now for made to order pitchables at any volume. Contact Omega Yeast today at omegayeast.com. Also, ABS Commercial has been a full service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and preventative maintenance parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. And are you a brewery and planning, considering the purchase of an existing brewery, or are you working in the industry and kicking around the idea of realizing your own brewery vision? If any of these apply, go to breweryworkshop.com right now and check out our upcoming Brewery Accelerator March 24th through 27th in Austin, Texas. Some of our favorite award-winning brewers are joining us to help share the knowledge you need, like Marcus Baskerville of Weathered Souls, Joe Morfeld of Pint House, Neil Fisher of Weldworks. Neil's flying down from Colorado to uh, to Austin for this event. Um, this will be our only Brewery Accelerator event in 2024, so don't wait. Secure your spot now at breweryworkshop.com. And if you're interested in going, grab those tickets quick. I think we have like two or three as of this recording uh, before it sells out. Um Let's talk about uh, spontaneous and wild beer. And I'm going to sp speak about those as somewhat separate things because sure. they're different avenues to get there. Um, you know, Nick, why don't you give us a, a primer on the the program here at Arizona Wilderness? You all are still have a dedicated facility for wild and sour beer here. And, uh, you know, and it's a pretty big commitment still, this style of beer. It is. It's uh, it's awesome that uh, you know, John and Pat are still very passionate about um, these. You know, funky we co we call them mixed culture beers. They all kind of most of them at least start off as uh, mixed culture saisons. But yeah, um, our heart's been in it, uh, in these styles since day one. Uh, John and Pat were brewing some some sour stuff be way before it even became uh, a thing. I think, and it might be gone now, but um, it might not be a thing anymore. Is that is, but um, let's keep it alive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Saison uh, is not a crime. The fact that it's not, <laughs> yeah, the fact that it's not maybe not as cool anymore makes it right. even more cool in my heart. Exactly. Same. Yeah. Same. Absolutely. But um, yeah. So we uh, it's we like still... the old hardcore thing. Like if you're not now, you never were. Exactly. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna see who the true believers were. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, but yeah, so we, we still do spontaneous beers as well. Um, we try to do at least one or two batches every year just to keep the pipeline going. You know, uh, as any brewer that, uh, brews those styles can tell you, you, you have to dump, uh, definitely a fair amount of those just to get to the good stuff. So, um, so yeah, we, especially down here in Arizona where it's very, very dry and uh, not quite as cold as it. Absolutely. So, um, we take advantage of that. I mean, the States, you know, vast and Tons of different uh, elevations within. So, um, if we ever need do need like That's a colder should, climate, yeah, I shouldn't say it's not that cold. Sure. I have I have been stuck in a blizzard yeah. <laughs> uh, between Phoenix and Flagstaff, exactly. going, oh, yeah. driving home in a, in a, like February from Tucson at one point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of the times, you know, we've done these camp cool ships, is what we call them. Uh, we'll drive to higher elevations, so we get a little bit longer of a, a brewing season out of the uh, out of that. So, uh, but also, I mean, kind of in the peak of winter here, um, it does get down to colder temps. Um, out in the desert, uh, kind of away from the city and sometimes even in the city. So, uh, last week we actually went to, we did our first one in Gilbert. That's not at our brewery. Our first spontaneous beer, we went out to a, a riparian preserve, um, and cast out some, some hot wort and, uh, amongst, uh, many different ponds and birds and all kinds of wildlife and all that. So really looking forward to that one kicking off here. Um, but we've also got out, gone out to the superstitions kind of down here in the Valley. And, um, yeah, like I said, something we like to do, um, every year so. Well, so I want to parse two of those things out. Maybe first we'll talk about spontaneous, and then we'll go back to the most of these beers start as saisons, because mm-hmm. um, I want to talk to you about how you you know build base recipes that can stand up to you know whatever that next process is. But let's first talk about uh, your approach to, to spontaneous brewing, um, and let's you know maybe first start with the wort that you make for it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like most of our beers, if not all. Um, the base grain is Sanago barley, um, grown up in the Verde Valley, um, an awesome project, which we'll probably get into a little bit later in this podcast, um, so we'll skip over that. But yeah, Sanago barley, a, just a pale Copeland varietal, uh, makes up about 60%, 65 uh, trying to follow a traditional you know, Belgian lambic grist. Uh, the other portion is about 35 40% unmalted uh, Sonoran white wheat, a varietal that's caught on pretty much... I, don't, I see it nationwide even. There's a lot of different um, farmers growing it. seems to grow well, but it is, you know, kind of based here in the Sonoran Desert. Um, so, yeah, very simple grain bill, uh, no acid malt. Um, we go through, you know, a traditional, tur- well, not a traditional, a, a turbid-ish, you know, uh, mash schedule so there. So, no, no pre-acidification, <laughs> that's what you're saying. Yeah, no okay. no pre-mash acidification or anything like that. And we just don't find it necessary. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, so that's the grist. And then we use whole cone hops that we've, kind of age in this back corner over here um those go into every brew. And your your 15 barrel over there can handle a turbid mash or is it a turbid ish it's definitely a turbid ish mash and even this year i was uh, getting some pointers on how to do some just you know high temp single infusion stuff just some workarounds to you know is all that labor truly necessary to create like a, a starchy wort and uh we'll see but i know there's some breweries that swore by it so. yeah what, what do you what were you uh, tweaking on that process yeah, so that's something uh, I might have tried before. I probably forgot, but um, just doing a high temp single infusion mash with a very short to no rest, uh, just to not create too many fermentable sugars, keep it still pretty unfermentable um, uh, to keep you know for long periods of time. So you say high temperature, how high? Um, I think it hit one sixty five uh, on this one. So one sixty five, and then just immediately vorloff and start laudering, and kind of did a fast lauder, uh, and then a really hot sparge. Um, yeah, I think 190 plus on the sparge, you know, extracting polyphenols and tannins and all the stuff you typically don't want in a, in a traditional mash. So, um, so yeah. Um, Bring me all the astringency that exactly, you can. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And those help for longevity, you know, yeah. um, those those things definitely precipitate out over time and yeah. um, just give some other foods for, uh, for whatever microbes uh, we might capture or might be living kind of in the space even or whatever it might be, whatever mystery and magic that actually is, so. So you you know you you pull this mash and then uh, you know you boil a wort after that you mentioned a little a little bit of hops but obviously not much. Yeah, um, we use about it kind of varies between two thirds of a pound or a pound per barrel of um, whole cone aged hops. Uh, that's definitely not easy. We don't we're not set up for whole, uh, whole cone hops on the hot side. Yeah, so we just use some muslin bags and, and whatever to strain. Do you age it out. them yourself? We do age them ourselves. Yes, okay. so we've had a, a nice stockpile Although over I, the years. I see that YCH Lambic Blend is on a crazy sell right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, in a per pound rate, if anyone wants a, some real bargains out oh, there, that's good to know. Actually, yeah. it doesn't hurt to have <laughs> some. Uh, Pellets on hand. I even. saw that. Uh, yeah, there. Uh, it was like a, the 2020 Lambic blend that they oh, had. Nice. It was, yeah. nice. And is that pelletized too, or is that like know. aged whole and know. then pelletized? Yeah, sorry. 
but it was like less than a dollar a pound. That's it was, awesome. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Anyway, um, not no, to not to distract. Okay. But yeah, we age we age them all in house. You know, we'll buy whole cone hops uh, a little bit extra um, every year. I like to use whole cone fresh hop. I like to use whole cone hops um, in other brews. I just kind of like the other characteristics they they provide for for these mixed culture beers. Um, but yeah, we'll stuff some in a in an old coffee bean sack, a burlap sack in the back here, and kind of sit on them for a while. Are there particular varieties that you use? Um, not really. I really like. We've got all kinds of stuff. I really like. Um, Crystal is really nice. Hmm. Sterling, um, Chinook have been really nice, and Cascade even. Just just the simple stuff. We've even dry hopped um, a couple beers with some of these aged hops just to understand them a little bit better, and and that's turned out some really interesting um, things. So, In what way? Um, I don't know. It's just like this different. You know, I you've think done we, like clean beers with not necessarily or, clean beers, but like mixed culture sure, saisons, sure. dry hopped with aged hops. You know, an ingredient mae you typically just see in, in spontaneous beers. But I know there's a definitely a trend amongst these kind of new new wave of saison brewers you know using aged hops more and more in in their process for so for what saison, you are so. saying if i'm reading between the lines yeah. you're adding some funky character Absolutely. to some of these other saisons <laughs> that you make simply by using the same Aged hops. Absolutely. Yeah, I digress a little bit. But, no, no, um, no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just trying to get it all on the record. Yeah, you yeah. know, and just just let the record show. Uh, that that's really interesting to me. And obviously, you know, you're for years we're always trying to like pinpoint where are where are these flavor contributions mm-hmm. coming? Where where how are you getting that really pleasing funk mm-hmm. that we all love about these, you know, Belgian and Belgian inspired beers? You know, and and obviously aged hops have always played a pretty significant part in there, you know, but it's also possible to go overboard and get unpleasant yes. uh, you know funk out of that too how do you massage that yeah i mean it's all sensory right you just gotta you know smell what you're putting into the beer you understand it a little bit more so than you before you add it so um just knowing what you're getting into so rubbing rubbing the hops uh before we're adding it uh, so yeah I, i pulled some some aged hops for a for a spontaneous brew and really like the characteristics out of those they're presenting just kind of like dehydrated grapefruit vibes from a, from a cascade. I'm like, oh, this could be really fun. Let's let's throw it um, into a into a non-spontaneous beer uh, at dry hop and kind of just see what happens. So, and I really like the results and I look forward to doing more of those. So, do you test any of the alpha acid on it or anything? I mean, never had that done. I, I know the answer to yeah, that. I really, yeah, I just <laughs> we don't have the equipment for that. But sure. I mean, so those I think were like from 2018, so they're well aged. They're five years old. And, yeah, um, uh, we. We had pretty good results. We do test. Um, I, I will send out for IBU testing, like right. um, after brewing with some of those hops, just to um, get an understanding uh, from the finished beer or the you know wort. But um, no, yeah, <laughs> five five years. That's your good point there. Or is there different ages for different hop varieties? Yeah, yeah. The higher you know, higher starting alpha. Try to maybe use those a little bit later in their in their uh, lifespan. Um, but. Yeah, I, I think you know three years is kind of our average. Um, we just happen to have some older stuff uh, as well. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then how do you uh, you know are, are they just sitting out in bags open? And what how do you uh, you know treat them around here in the brew house? Yeah, absolutely. They're actually just kind of. Tuck- I love this yeah. because it's such a like <laughs> this speaks to that that kind of brewer element. When I was at Grimm in Brooklyn, uh, you know they have bags tied up around the the side of the warehouse, and it's just a cool you know around the brew house. It, you know it's just such a fun brewery way yeah, to like yeah. uh, you know do this or so of course obviously the Jester King uh, sure. barn and you know I've walked upstairs uh, you know in that rickety rickety barn with the you know to see where Jester King's aging there's mm-hmm. um, you know it all speaks to the romantic story Absolutely. about uh, you know how you're processing these no that's a good pointer I mean maybe I should display them a little bit more yeah. here in this space uh, for customers you gotta tell, this, at, tell so. the story that's true Nick, very yeah. true yeah uh, but yeah we just have them in burlap sacks like I said and um, just kind of they're just sitting out exposed to the ambient air and um Yeah, they just hang out kind of by themselves for a while. Uh, yeah. Do you ever give them a mix? I love that about uh, Matt Tarpey at the Vale, his mm. process where he has them in plastic bins. And like every now and then they'll just turn them over right and turn them over. Yeah. You know, like, just, uh, yeah. yeah, because they're in burlap, I think it's pretty porous, yeah. so yeah. it might not have to. But if they were in plastic or something like that, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Absolutely. We move the stuff around here yeah. enough to where they, they get moved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> There's enough shuffling going yeah. on. Absolutely. That's fair. It's fair, but uh, you know, and so uh, you're even though you don't know what the alpha is on these, you're generally just you know going by weight and yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, just a lot of um, you know we've we've like I, I would said, seem to create some variability potentially in the you know the viability of certain cultures uh, uh, within this whole process. Hundred percent, yeah, um, but yeah, so the methodology. I mean, we've like I said, done spontaneous 
beers. I don't know when the first one was. I know it was with Other Half. It was before I joined the company. The first spontaneous brew was with Other Half. But So we've been doing them for, I want to say, five plus years. So it's trial and error. I remember all these the press ones. releases. Yeah. Uh, we've <laughs> gone on a camping trip out in the mountains and we, you know, spontaneously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they, some crazy stuff back in the day. We sure. get the, we get the PR. <laughs> we, we've seen we've seen all the press releases. Uh-huh. So so you 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 know brew this beer um, and then you know what's the next step? Your your spontaneous process. Yes. Yeah, so I shouldn't say you brew the beer. You brew the you boil this wort with a you know half pound to a pound per barrel of hops. Yeah, absolutely. So um, mostly following the uh, the method traditionnel guidelines that were put out you know a few handful of years ago. I know that might have fallen out of popularity in some way, um, but I think it's a good set of rules to. I like I like rules. Guidelines. I like some guidelines. guidelines. You know, I like maybe not rules. Maybe I like just guidelines. Cha- yeah, yeah. I like the chaos element absolutely, but some sort of starting point or standardization of something just to riff off of is is always fun for me. So follow those um, MT guidelines um, for the most part. Um, so yeah, we'll brew a turbid ish mash, uh, boil for three hours minimum. Um, and then, yeah, um, kind of once, usually we're brewing these beers with a big group or three hours here in Arizona where it's this dry, uh, you know, and you've got a (laughs) higher boil off rate than, uh, you know, say Brussels. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll I'll definitely, you know, lauder over, um, more than I think I need, um, just in case. Um, cause a lot of times, you know, that's three hours minimum. So like I said, a lot of times these camp cool ships are organized with other groups or, you know, breweries or whatever. So we're trying to ring, you know, herd cats um, when we're trying to leave to go whatever our destination is. So it's gone as long as, you know, five, six hours before everyone's put together and um, mm-hmm. ready to hit the road. So, um, so yeah, that's always fun. Oh, if your boil time depends <laughs> on brewers' schedules yeah, yeah. and logistics. You're, Organized chaos. Exactly. Yeah, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, on okay. collab day too, you know, that's just basically everyone's just drinking from, from early morning. So yeah. <laughs> at least get that yeah. extra amber, uh, reduced yeah. boil process, which it's pretty yeah. remarkable. Yeah. looks great. Too. Yeah, exactly. That's what makes some of this beer so good. Yeah. Create but, uh, some of those Maillard, Maillard characters and some of that, uh, lasting, uh, sweetness that helps balance out some of that funk. Absolutely. But, yeah. So then you, uh, you load it up, you, you knock out into, uh, you know, without cooling into uh, a tote. Yep. Yeah. So we'll knock out, you know, bypass, not bypass the heat exchanger, but, you know, not activate any cold liquor, um, right into some stainless steel totes, just totes, just our intermediate vessel to, um, you know, seal it off and not splash it all along the highway or the roads or whatever. Um, and then once we're at our destination, just kind of use a full 15 barrel batch then not always. I've cut them down to about, you know, 10 barrels, um, just to yield, um, an even two. we, we ferment these primarily in punchins. Um, so just to yield like an even eight barrels, uh, give or take. Um, so yeah, it's a smaller, smaller batch than 15. I feel like the cooling rate's a little bit better. Um, so that's my preference. Sure. We used to do 15s, but. And I think we've done smaller even, but but ten seems to be about the sweet spot, yielding about eight. Um, so, yeah. So you drive these into various places. Yeah, we've gone. And all, you've got all a mobile over. cool ship. Yeah, yeah. So we'll basically just put these totes on the back of our uh, back of a trailer. Uh, holds up pretty well. We'll sandwich the our cool ship here uh, in the middle of the totes. Find our destination. Uh, usually, sometimes we'll. We're going to some pretty crazy stuff, some some crazy terrain. So we're hey, dropping so. pins in Google Maps all the time. Yeah, <laughs> lots usually, of pins. Usually, Pat and John are scoping out the spot and then drop some pins, and then everyone heads there. So and then even while we're driving, sometimes that pin changes. changes like, yeah. it's like oh, there's World War Three. There's yeah. a bunch of people shooting guns over here. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's always you know keeps you on your toes, but. Um, yeah, cool ships in the middle. And it's a commitment. I mean, you you know, you <laughs> need to leave it out for, you know, what, at least 12 hours or so, right? Yeah, yeah. So we'll plan to get to our, our spot. Um, you know, before the sun goes down, everyone has time to, we're camping. So everyone yeah. has time to set up their, their tents and their stuff and not having to use headlamps. Uh, sure. And, and yeah, all that, avoiding all that. So we'll get there, you know, call it five o'clock and we'll hang out till usually, you know, seven or eight, whenever people are actually up and alive uh, the next morning. So. Yeah, you know, twelve hours plus, and usually that you know, we're we're scheduling this around the weather, so that's usually enough time to get it to uh you know in the mid sixties or whatever you know we'd like it to be at. So sure, yeah. sure. So you've done these spontaneous fermentations at a number of different locations, whether it's up in the mountains, whether it's at a riparian preserve, as you mentioned, or whether they're in fruit orchards. I remember seeing those uh, you know in the past. Wherever this is. Have you developed any kind of 
knowledge or repeatability, like to understand how the locations impact, potentially impact those fermentations, the spontaneous fermentations versus, because at the same time, there's only a few data points in any given year. Mm -hmm. And so there's also the brew questions and there's all the other process things that can impact that. And it's hard, (laughs) it might be hard to pinpoint those certain variables, those variables. Yeah, there's so many variables. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, so many variables. I, to be honest, I'd say no. We haven't really revisited um, many locations. We did. We have done the Superstition Mountains back to back years now. Um, so that will definitely be interesting. Um, uh, so looking forward to collecting more of that data, understanding like kind of what we are capturing a little bit better. Is something I look forward to uh, expanding on in the coming years. So I don't know if it's just power of suggestion, but the. Uh, yeah. The Stoic one we were trying a couple months ago. Stoic's a um, uh, uh, apple orchard and cider place. I don't out towards Tucson. Uh, Prescott actually. Prescott. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I swear there was some apple notes to it when we were tasting yeah. it, but it definitely could have been power of suggestion. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that that is a good highlight. Absolutely. Um, that one is straight up pear and apple. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and not you know acetaldehyde kind of kind of right. tones there, but definitely some some nuance orchard fruit. Uh, so that's a really exciting one. And I think, um, so another one we're releasing actually tomorrow um, is a, one we did in a citrus grove um, at Agritopia Farms where we get all of our citrus. Uh, big thing here in Arizona. So um, I think that one's got some fun uh, orange, you know, citrus kind of notes to it as well. But again, so power suggestion power maybe. Suggestion. <laughs> but uh, sure, sure. you be the judge. You know, I don't like to suggest tasting notes too much. But. Are there... Are there any commonalities to batches that uh, have not made it through or where you just have had to let those go and some circumstances as you've been able to identify that uh, really didn't set them up for success? 100%. Yeah. One common thing I'm finding, and I can't stand it, and I wish I knew what the source was, but it's a just uh, green olive character that just does not go away. Um, and that has been the most frustrating one for sure. <laughs> and you um, haven't found a, a way to isolate that or understand what's driving it. Uh, I haven't, unfortunately. So if anyone out there uh, has sure, some ideas, sure. please reach out. <laughs> but yeah, not All a right. fan of that. We'll get to the bottom of this. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing you do do is steam the crap out of your barrels so that everything is entirely neutral, right? You know, that you are like, there was, I was reading some, some, the research keeps coming around every now and then. Well, you know, spontaneous beer or lambic isn't really spontaneous. It's all being driven by the culture in the barrels. And obviously in my conversations with Belgian brewers, you know, they're, they have different opinions and different approaches on that. And someone like Pierre Tilcan, you know, has very explicitly stated, like, we clean our barrels. We want different things in each of our barrels. And if it was all coming out of the barrels, we will get the same culture and wouldn't be able to blend from it. And what good would that do us as a brewer? Totally understandable, you know, perspective from that, you know, but then you also have the others who are like, yeah, we kind of clean our barrels, <laughs> um, you know, and there's a house culture to that. And so, you know, there, this range that exists is interesting even within, you know, the Belgian approach to Lambic, but you are hardcore, you know, cleaning everything out and trying to capture, you know, the character yeah. of wherever you are. Yeah, for sure. And I just wanted to speak to like the Camp Cool Ship a little bit. It going over it briefly, it kinda like sounds like, oh, it's just crazy. We're just kinda going out there, but it's it's pretty organized and it's fun and it it's a really hyper representation of Arizona wilderness, in my opinion. Cause it's not just the brew team or like other people. Like we like our chef made some patsies this last time we went out and we're cooking there and there's just there's servers there and restaurant staff and everybody out there and we're just kind of like all part of this mission um and yeah the camping part of arizona wilderness is kind of it's a, it's a big thing camp cool ship was something i had known about and hadn't been a part of so super stoked um to be a part of it but yeah it's it it's not just ragtag like mm-hmm. the he he has that van down to a science and everything fits perfectly onto the trailer mm-hmm. and it's 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 a pretty pretty neat operation to see it's cool and a great how, company bonding experience yeah sure. like exactly Brad mentioned, yeah yeah, it's yeah. A, <clears throat> we try to get as many people out as we can so how many times a season do you typically brew cool ship beers yeah, I'm shooting for at least two. Uh, more would be great. Um, but yeah, at least two. Yeah. And that still produces a pretty decent amount of uh, spontaneous beer for a year, given 
what current consumers uh, actually purchase of that style of beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you nailed it. Unfortunately, you know, I wish there were more. Uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much what dictates it. Yeah. So then uh, what, what's your next step with these cool ship beers? You know, are you then uh, releasing single season beers or do you then, you know, split those streams and, and blend some? Are you working into the multi-year blends? You know, where do you take that spontaneous beer after that, you know, that fermentation process and aging process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, right now we're just kind of releasing them as seasonal things, kind of more like Lambic uh, than Goose. Yeah. Um, uh, but eventually, you know, our goal is to find the right beer and the right stock to create like a three-year blend would be really fun or, you know, even more. I know there's some spontaneous breweries out there. They're producing five plus year old stuff and that's, that's amazing. That's really cool. Um, but just having, as long as it tastes good, as long as it tastes good. Exactly. Um, but yeah, what, what I've had like some five-year showcase. blends where you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> could have been a three-year blend. Yeah. yeah. A little, a little harsh <laughs> okay. on the throat maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, uh, it's okay. You know, yeah, yeah. like I said, you know, there were, you, you have marketing stunts, but then, you know, you also want to just make beautiful beer. And, uh, and so that's the more important thing. If you have, if you have it to blend and you can make great beer with it. Great. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But right now we're just showcasing kind of each region of, of Arizona that we go to kind of by itself. So interesting. And then, uh, you know, are, do you then after that process, are these all just released as, you know, that, that straight spontaneous beer or are you doing ingredient blends then after the fact on any of these? Yeah, right now, um, none of these have been fruited. That is something John actually specifically wants um, for next year. Uh, I think we're going to find some awesome um, Arizona fruit, maybe even some Arizona cherries and do uh, Creek-inspired beer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's the goal there. Um, but yeah, right now, it's just been straight up, you know, no no blending even. We've done some beer decoupage, uh, you know, some blends of spontaneous beer and mixed culture saison. But other than that, it's just been straight spontaneous beer, no other adjuncts whatsoever. Um, well, all right. Well, yeah. I want to flip around and talk about uh, the saison, you know, approach that you also take, which complements this in a little different way, um, and that definitely includes those uh, ingredients, like our 100 rated jitterbug perfume, <laughs> that was a 2023 beer of the year. Did I mention that already? <laughs> I mean, am, I, am, I, am I repeating myself? Anyway, I want to talk about that, uh, which is absolutely the creative flex side of what you do here. Before we do that, SS Brewtech was founded by a group of home and craft beer brewers dedicated to bringing an engineering first approach to brewery equipment ss brew houses are used to formulate new beer recipes at some of the world's greatest breweries and are the cornerstone of many local breweries to learn more about ss brewtech's innovation list head on over to ssbrewtech.com also some brewers want their water profile to be that of their city and that sounds great except for one factor depending upon the city and the day the water quality can vary 40 to 50%. So a Monday brew can taste very different from a Thursday brew. Savvy brewers know this since beer is like 95% water. The best method is to start with the same water every time and reverse osmosis gives you that power. Visit uswatersystems.com for a free expert analysis. All right. Not to keep harping on sour beer, but I'm, I, and I shouldn't even say Saison is not necessarily sour beer. I would not have defined the, the beers that you all gave us for the, that issue um, as necessarily sour, per se. They had an acidic component to them. Um, but talk about your Saison process. How does that recipe start? And then, uh, you know, in particular, I'm curious how you build interesting bases knowing that you're going to load in, you know, some pretty heavy, you know, characterful flavors, ingredients on top of them. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so uh, I guess much like the grist of our spontaneous beers, I like to keep everything pretty simple. Um, primarily, the Sinagua barley is at the core of, of all of these beers. Um, and I swear we're going to talk about that <laughs> yeah, in a yeah. second, Brad. I swear. I swear. <laughs> Brad's chomping at the bit. No, you're all good. No. <laughs> um, yeah, Sinagua barley is the base. Uh, and then some uh, usually malted Sonora white wheat. Um, I prefer that a little bit over the, the raw stuff for these um, quicker turn, I guess, Saison and all that, relatively quick, you know, not as old as <laughs> a four month beer. Yeah, instead yeah, of exactly. A, you know, yeah. And I'd say most of the stuff that comes out of these barriques and barrels um, here um, is in that six month range in, in oak. So give or take, you know, widely. But yeah, uh, Sinagua barley, 25% um, ish uh, malted Sonora white wheat, sometimes raws in there, sometimes. Um, some oats or rye or whatever, you know, kind of character grains there. It kind of just depends, but mostly, primarily, it's a, it's a, it's a pale. It just malt. depends on what you're feeling that exactly, day. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. How we want to, yeah, what we want to play around with. But um, so, so yeah, that's that's the base of them. Um, I, I find that it gives a 
great character. Um, something that we have been trying to incorporate a little bit more so is working with a, a local, um, newer local farm that's really pushing the um, uh, regenerative organic certified grain. So they're growing um, up uh, out west of here, I believe. I, I haven't visited the farm yet. Uh, they are newer. Uh, but they're bringing some uh, ROC certified um, red fife and blue durum wheats um, and all kinds of really fun stuff. So so those um, I have been using um, kind of in replacing the, the Sonoran uh, white wheat component of it. So, you know, 75% um, Sanagua and then 25% of those character grains. Um, just trying to, we'll get into ROC agriculture maybe a little bit, uh, yeah. regenerative agriculture a little bit later. Um, but yeah, something we really want to push um, going forward and we're, I think doing a great job of that. How uh, do those uh, regenerative grains work? Uh, you know, compared to your normal wheat. Yeah, I, I haven't done enough of them to really say what distinct um, characteristics they're providing versus the wheat. It's just you know something uh, something a little sure. bit different and uh, a different color on the palate. You know, when we are blending, um, you know, those beers going into oak are going to taste a little bit different than the than the other ones. So so what I try to do here is is create. Uh, and brew just smaller batches, you know, 15 barrel batches um, instead of double brews, uh, which is what we typically do um, just for efficiency. But uh, I like to create and fill um, barriques um, just with as much diverse stock as I can, um, just again, to create different colors to to then play with. And I think kind of going into Jitterbug, it, it kind of speaks to that. Um, so <laughs> I was looking at the the uh, the log that we kept for that, and it's I think six different base beers went into that. So none of it really from a single thread of beer. Uh, which is kind of funny. You know, some more acid forward barrel, more acid forward barrels. Um, some pretty heavily hopped and therefore a little bit cleaner. Um, and then you know, Chad and I, uh, the assistant brewer here, um, you know, we we went through and, and picked through a bunch of stuff that we thought would fit the profile of those beats. So um, I think we came up with something pretty nice. But yeah, five different um, wort streams <laughs> were, were were made up that jitterbug. So. How much of that beer did you make to where you could pull that many different barrels yeah. to, to blend into it? Yeah. So what we'll do, like I said, brew, we'll brew 15 barrels and then, uh, you know, uh, rack that all out into into barriques and push and pull and, and pull stuff out. So sometimes we're left with oddball barrels that are oh, on gotcha, a partial gotcha. rack or whatever. So that's just the way it ended up being and the way it, uh, it was convenient for us too. You know, sometimes uh, blending is not just for taste. It's it's to be quite honest, it's for convenience. You know, you don't want to use a partial barrel. You don't want to um, use something. Uh, I don't know. That's just my take on you it. Know, but you throw it on the bench there too, and then exactly. you know, all of a sudden now, oh, you know, that could add something to this, and, and here we go. Absolutely, yeah. So, well, so the interesting thing is that the answer to my question really is that uh, through the blend and through pulling all of these things together, at various ages and uh, you know various kinds of you know wood character, all of these things that's how you, uh, you know, kind of creatively process this idea of supporting those ingredients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, again, just for <laughs> just trying to create a diverse stock. Absolutely. Um, and then, yeah, what we're doing is like you mentioned, just kind of bench topping stuff. So, um, something I even learned from, uh, when I went to Tilken, uh, it's a good example. Um, he's got these brands of fruited, um, goose that he in Lambix sure. that he releases every year, but he always plays with, you know, what proportions and how much, how much can you stretch something and, and still maintain the integrity of the beer, the integrity of the fruit. Um, so we're constantly doing stuff like that and, and just playing with something before we fully commit, I guess, is the responsible thing to do, um, playing around with it. So, so tell me then about, you know, getting great, uh, results out of using beets because beets are a very polarizing ingredient. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, as we sat around the judging table and I, I listened to our judges responding to the beer, um, I kept, kept hearing, well, I don't typically like beet beers. That's oh, perfect. you know, yeah. or like norm, normally like, you know, these beet beers are just so earthy and you know, like, you know, talk to me about your creative process and finding balance there. Yeah. I love changing people's minds like that. Um, just going back to Fair Isle, you know, that's Fair Isle only brews, only brewed when I was there, at least uh, mixed culture Saison. So we would hear it all the time. Like, oh, I don't typically like Saison, but that's all you got. And these are pretty damn good. So, um, so I love, I love hearing that. And like I said, changing people's minds. So yeah, Jitterbug Perfume was a uh, reimagining of a, a beer uh, we did uh, with Beats uh, a long time ago and kind of fell out of favor and we just kind of stopped making it. But um, since I've been back, we, we've kind of dug up some of these old brands uh, that 
uh, maybe fell by the wayside and just kind of reimagining them as, instead of like Saisons or Whitbeers, um, kind of reimagining them as these mixed culture um, projects. So, so yeah, we did a, a beat wit back in the day. Um, and yeah, I wanted to go back to it because I liked, I loved drinking it. I loved the flavors we got out of it. So, um, you know, not just earthy beet notes, but a lot of just red fruit, raspberry kind of notes and, uh, wanted to recreate that. So I, uh, we, we used the same farm that we used, you know, many years ago, Steadfast Farms and, uh, got some of their awesome beets, uh, that grow very well. And, uh, in the, in the colder months, so something fun and fruit esque, uh, that's not necessarily fruit. So had our kitchen, uh, thankfully we've got a kitchen that can do all the roasting, um, roasted the beets up and actually, you know, the secret, the big secret, I think, I guess, is um, after roasting, just peel off that that outside skin layer. And that's where all that dirt and kind of funk and earth really, I think, resides. And uh, once they're kind of cleaned up, they're just this beautiful, you know, vegetable that's uh, got a ton of flavor to offer. So I think a lot of the times people don't like beets. They haven't eaten them in the right way. Yeah. We have a beet and apple salad. That's the, so good. it's a staple <laughs> side here at Wilderness. And it's phenomenal. Um, local beets from Steadfast Farms, that's just right down the road. So I think it's how you prepare them. Um, they're, they're not the beets that, you know, right. your mom was leaving the skin on when she was cooking and forcing you to eat when you were five. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I personally love beets. My wife okay. hates them. So we have a very different opinion on those. <laughs> uh, but I, I love jitterbug perfume. And, and I think, you know, you're right. When you capture that kind of, that, that sweetness and that, that kind of character to them, um, there's something just so nice and round and that they evoke all these other uh, red fruit flavors, um, you know, alongside of it. Uh, how did you uh, then balance out that very strong uh, beet flavor? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, so we, you know, had an initial dosage rate in mind and, you know, threw them in the beer, kind of let it steep for a while. And man, the color, you know, people drink with their eyes first oh and my the, gosh. the color on that's that such beer, a beautiful beer is just gnarly it's it's so cool and um you know the initial blend your pr guy <laughs> send us a bottle i didn't tell him why yeah. but i needed a we had a we drunk the two bottles you had sent but i had to have the color of that beer yeah. in our photography for that that best in beer issue because it's such a beautiful color it's yeah putting it in that clear glass was yeah was was definitely the right move yeah big fan of that um, so it's funny, yeah, the initial blend was, you know, concentrated and we're like, man, I, you know, it's really, really nice. And I think we can kind of get a little bit more out of it. And it actually, sh we blended another barrique in and it, it, I think it made the color pop even more somehow. And, um, and then, yeah, just, I mean, just based on taste is, is kind of what Chad and I did there and, um, uh, topped it up with some, a little bit, a little tiny bit of lemon juice just to push the acid a little farther and mm. sharpen it and kind of brighten it. And then a little bit of, um, uh, fresh ground coriander too, just to again brighten it up and maybe even accentuate some of those notes. So, you mentioned that you know, like five or six uh, different wort streams went into mm -hmm. this beer. Um, you know, as you build a blend for that, you know, how do you? What were you pulling from? And uh, you know, were there specific things you were looking for that could uh, support that kind of strong flavor? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I, this, you know, my second stint at Wilderness here. So kind of when I started a couple of years ago again, um, we're kind of restarting our house mixed culture. So. Um, you know, when I got in, I just kind of wanted to refill some barrels and, and recreate some of these stocks. And I just kind of went all over the place, um, pick, you know, picked out, um, some specific Saison yeast. You know, so there's a couple different yeasts in there. Um, a couple different lactose strains and some PDO and some Brett strains as well. So I just kind of created some different worts with varying IBU levels. And like I said, brewed 15 barrels of, of whatever and, and, and tucked them away in barrels for a while. And, and again, had all these different colors to play with. So we pulled from, you know, some pretty neutral stock and then, um, some of the, the lower IBU stuff turned pretty sour and actually ended up really nice and, uh, threw those into the blend. And, uh, my personal preference is again, yeah, not to, to make sour, sour beer. I don't think, uh, it doesn't, it's not, it's not for me. We've um, all grown up since then. Yeah, exactly. These, these face ripping, um, sour stuff. Um, but it, you do like some acid, and, and sure. you can always use uh, a, a very sour barrel. Makes uh, sharpens up a, a, a blend uh, very nicely. So, so it's good to have those things on hand. Um, or you can just add lemon juice too. Yeah, or you can just <laughs> add lemon juice. Yeah, locally grown lemons, of course, oh, um, of man. course. Right. Uh, so, 
So yeah, we were, uh, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a neat process. Yeah, Obviously yeah. I wanted to, to dive in and really understand this beer since it was one of our favorites of last year. Yeah. It was just so art- artfully crafted, you know, and found its own balance in a, you know, it had just that perfect amount of sweetness left that helped offset some of that little bit of that earthiness. And then those, those, like you said, berry characters, you know, as you mentioned, were really just beautifully expressed. I love this category of beer and I know I've said it on our best in beer episode of the podcast because I find that this is the this is the kind of sour beer that can go toe to toe with natural wine, and uh, I you know as a beer proponent think that most natural winemakers are nowhere near as good at making acid forward beverages that capture all these flavors uh, as beer makers are because number one they don't have as many tools at their disposal uh, they can't use all of the fruits and flavors and ingredients that the beer makers can and so if people are looking for this I think the beer um, and again, I'm biased, sure. you know, as, as a, as a beer guy, I'm biased, yeah. but, uh, I love that the clear bottle and that approach because it really shows that all that off. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. That's the, that's kind of the market we're trying to hit. Um, cause I do think, you know, your natural wine, sparkling wine drinkers would appreciate some of our mixed culture stuff because the, the flavor profiles are very similar. Um, and the fruit, fruit characteristics are very similar as well. Yeah, I would say your funk characteristics are better, but uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah, very dry, somewhat funky, yeah. you know, beers and wines. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's completely shift gears here now, or mm-hmm. I shouldn't say completely shift gears because we have hinted at talking about the Sinagua barley, um, several points here, but let's talk about the, you know, the Arizona wilderness approach to uh, regenerative uh, agriculture, uh, about supporting grain growers here in the state. Um, who are using, uh, you know, things like low water grains, grains that can grow in the difficult climate here in Arizona, um, you know, and also finding these ingredients, working with them to find ingredients that that work within beer itself. Talk to me about that, Brad. Yeah, yeah. I don't have 100% of the details, but the story, the way I've heard it, is the Nature Conservancy kind of approached um, Arizona Wilderness and was like, hey, if we get some farmers to plant some barley in place of corn and alfalfa and we get someone to malt it, would you guys use it? And John and Pat are always just kind of like, whatever's local, yeah, sure, we'll do it. Um, and so they got Chip up at Sanagua was the the maltster. And I, I believe the first place they were malting was an old, like, drive-through car wash that they had purchased. Um, and I've looked through the brew logs, and there was some major trials and tribulations when they were first going through this malt. There was dump batches. There was low extract. Um, but Wilderness kind of, like, stuck with it and kept trying and kept trying and kept trying. And then finally, um, Sanagua figured it out, got to a point to where we could, um, use hundred percent Sanagua for everything. And tons of these farmers up in the Verde Valley. Um, do you know, Nick, if it's, if it was, was it the nature conservancy? Yeah, I believe so. Yep. Yeah. And yep. the, the goal was to get, keep water in the Verde Valley. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and I'm cool. closing on this too. Yeah. The goal was to keep water in the Verde and basically swapping alfalfa out, uh, because it's like a cool. high water usage during the summer right. months. Yeah. 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 So they swapped alfalfa with Copeland two row. Um, Sanago was malting it and it was just a, it was a pretty laborious process to get through, but th- they made it and then they were consistently making good grain and kind of created this local grain economy. Um, to the point now to where Sanagua put in some new, they got some alfalfa is just feed, right? Animal feed, animal feed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So barley brewing barley would be a higher value crop for a lot of those farmers. Exactly. Yeah. Higher, higher value crop. And it's keeping more water into the soil and not pulling from the the Verde. It seemed like a good project for them and and they wanted to be, be on board with it. Um, and it got to the point to where Sanagua was doing so well that they got some outside funding and they upgraded their facility. Um, and now they're at the point to where they're killing malts too. Um, to kind of turn this all around, like it wasn't just them they were working with. They're working with Oatman Farms, which is the opposite way. I think they're southeast. Um, and they're doing um, wheat, um, regenerative organic wheat specifically, um, which Sanagua is malting. So they just kind of created this whole interconnected Arizona malt. So it's really interesting how brewing can be at the center of this, you know, whole agricultural product or yeah. project that also changes the way that everyone from growers and maltsters approaches ingredients made here too. So now, now like how much of uh, of this uh, Sinago barley do you use? 
Um, it's a hundred percent of our base malt. A hundred percent of your base malt is all. Wow. The okay. only the only exception is Kernza, our Kernza project with Patagonia, um, where that has to be organic malt, and um, Sinagua isn't certified organic. Okay. Um, but that's the only beer that doesn't that we're not using it in. Well, that's really interesting. So you know, I mean, you you're also now then you, you know moving brands that people have some expectations around some classic beers that uh, your customers at Arizona Wilderness okay. know um, how did then using this barley did it change any of that or change any of the approaches in the brew house around some of these things yeah I fully think so I think that was part of the growing process it was a years-long long thing yeah. where I think they were using some Sanagua and then supplementing with what whatever domestic two-row they were using before um, and it got to the point to where there was enough of it to where all the house beers were made with that. And it's a pretty neutral malt. It has its own yeah. characteristics, but it's it's not far off from a raw two-row or anything like that. Yeah, it's definitely come a long way. I was <clears throat> I was here when we got the first few shipments of the the early, early uh, Sanago barley. And yeah, like Brad mentioned, it was it was all over the map, you know, COA-wise, like it uh, you know, very high protein, very tough to lauder sometimes, tough to convert. Hmm. Um, pH was all over the place. Uh, and then, yeah, they, they dialed their stuff in a little bit more. But um, yeah, it, it, as far as flavor profile, it was definitely more grassy and just kind of different. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, we, we started just blending in. Grassy some, and different. Yeah, Tell me more different. about that. <laughs> I, I don't recall. This was years ago. I just remember it being, you know... It, it, it wasn't so off-putting that, you know, customers flipped out. Sure. Um, but, you know, in, internally, we definitely noticed a little bit of a difference. But, I mean, over the past few years now, they've really dialed things in. And um, uh, their malt COAs are a lot more consistent. Um, so Yeah, it's it's super consistent. We don't notice. Um, I didn't notice coming here um, any different from any other two-row. Um, and on top of the two-row, we're using Arizona Sonoran white wheat um, in all of our hazies and whatever else we're putting wheat into. Um, yeah. So it's really a drive to put as much Arizona-grown grain into these beers for the most part, other than I imagine a few specialties that no one is making around here where you have to... Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. We're going to use it local. We're going to try to source our ingredients local first, first and foremost. Um, and we do get our specialty grains from other places. Sure. But Sanagua just started um, kilning and roasting grains, so we actually just got pale chocolate, chocolate malt, um, a light crystal and a biscuit malt that we're going to, we're going to make our chocolate bunny porter with. So interesting. I, you know, I, I think, you know, the other cool piece about this, uh, you know, is, is the way that I've, you know, I've talked to plenty of brewers over the years about this, like, you know, Brendan from Odell, the key thing to changing the agriculture is brewers supporting it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and that uh, a hop grower, has you know can't necessarily put the resources into something new uh, or a new variety unless there's a market for it and the sponsors you know help bring that along you know in this sense it, you know in a lot of ways it was Arizona Wilderness and I imagine there's probably other brewers here in Arizona also kind of supporting and basically sponsoring this whole project taking this and you know creating an economic uh, you know value for this so that uh, both the gro- the growers and the maltster could come along, you know, and get up to that kind yeah. of speed to where it could become a thing. Uh, but it would have been really easy to like, you know, uh, kill it in its infancy, uh, um, you know, just because it wasn't kind of going exactly the way you no, wanted for it sure. to. The, the, the dedication and the commitment was definitely there from the beginning. And we're not the only one using Sinagua now. Right. I think we're the, the biggest single customer, but I know Dark Sky is using it up in Flagstaff. Uh, Renhouse uses it a little bit too. Um, so yeah, it's the, but wilderness was the backbone of creating that local Arizona grain economy. Yeah, that's awesome. Talk to me a little bit about Kernza. You know, that's another thing that you just mentioned. Uh, this yeah. uh, perennial grain that Patagonia has been really, you know, big behind, and uh, we've seen a number of brewers brewing Kernza beers now. Obviously, Patagonia is trying to yeah. build a good network there, and you know, even, even folks like Russian River have brewed a Kernza beer. But uh, you you threw some in the fridge here. Talk to me about uh, brewing with that grain. And uh, yeah, so Kernza we- is um, a perennial wheat um, wheat grain. It's a regenerative organic where it's being grown. Um, and Patagonia Provisions, the food side of Patagonia, approached Arizona Wilderness and a bunch of other breweries, Sierra Nevada, Topa Topa, um, Aslan, I think. Um, I think it's just like 10 breweries. Just 10 breweries, yeah. They're all kind of regionally focused, um, who kind of had the same um, ideals as Patagonia. Um, And it was all like, hey, everyone make this lager with it. Um, 
to kind of promote using regenerative organic ingredients. Um, and it's an interesting grain. Um, it's It looks completely different than normal wheat. It's like long and dark brown. Um, and it has kind of a nutty character to it. Um, brewing with it, it's fine. Um, it doesn't seem to louder any different. We're using it at about 20% in the Kernza lager that we're doing. Um, yeah, and the taste is good. It's a phenomenal lager. Why 20%? Is that something that uh, someone else has decided, or is that... Uh... I th- yeah, I think so. The The first few batches, the first batch had been brewed when I started, but um, yeah, there's only a certain amount of it out there. Right, um, right. So they were kind of trying to keep that a little bit low. We That's, again, how I was... We were talking about Sanagua. And that's, it is a wheat, not a barley. So. It is a wheat, yeah, and that's the only... Um, beer that we make where the base malt is not right um, right is not sanagua we use uh unorganic, unorganic malt for that um but yeah yeah i think about 20 percent organic hops um yeah so you haven't made a 100 percent currents of beer yet no we Has haven't tried it'd be very expensive it'd be super, <laughs> the, the, the grain is not cheap yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um i'm hoping like it does have some really nice nutty characters so uh-huh. as the um as more people get this and the economy for this specific grain grows, I kind of wanted to maybe make a brown ale with it or something like that. But yeah. interesting, yeah. interesting. I'm not right. sure too many people would buy it, but uh, it's something I want to make with it. <laughs> brown ales, let's bring it back. Let's <laughs> yeah. just bring it back. Yeah. A good Patagonia story around brown yeah. ale would probably help sell it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, the pictures of it are amazing when you see the roots that go down like several feet underground, yeah. sometimes even six feet underground, and uh, you know, and how this this grain. Um, yeah. you know, again, doesn't have to be sown each year. It's a perennial right. grain, so it grows back. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, when it comes to that agriculture, keeping those, keeping all the nutrients in the ground, um, and not just, you know, uh, open, uh, you know, finding that kind of biodynamic approach where, uh, other crops are creating this is necessary with some of these, right. uh, yearly crop annual crops, but these perennials, like they can do all of it themselves. Yeah, the, the visuals with kerns are incredible. Like you said, the root structure, how deep it goes down. You can see there's there's pictures of like the soil mo- moisture yeah. in fields with it and without it and over time how like how moist the, the fields stay with this grain in it. Um, but yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm curious about that. Any other, any other interesting approaches, uh, you know, to, to grain and ingredients that, uh, you know, that you all use with this local, uh, local focus that you have? Yeah, I think it's kind of, um, I talk with Chip up at Sinagua a lot and he was kind of like, Hey, we're going to start roasting malts. What do you want? So the, it's a lot of back and forth, um, and talking with their, their, their maltster up there, Russell just kind of, he asked me, he's like, what do you want? And I'm like, well, what? what do you make that's good? Like, what do you, what are you interested in malting, you know, in kilning? Um, so it's just those conversations and that's kind of, kind of how we approach ingredients here too. Um, we get, Have you it, given them specs, you know, for some of these, what you would love to see out of some of these, uh, uh roasted malts. Um, I did give them some like basic color specs yeah. for, for the darker stuff, but it's kind of just like, tell me what it is and I can build a recipe around that. Yeah. So. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know any anything else there on the the grain side that's interesting or or even you know amongst other ingredients uh you know citrus or, or other uh things grown here in arizona yeah the, the other interesting grain thing is oatman farms like i said is doing some regenerative organic wheat too and we, we just brewed it's in one of our fooders over here we're gonna brew a wheat beer with it or, or we brewed a wheat beer with it um Sanagua based malt, regenerative organic malt that's grown at oatman malted at Sanagua um with local citrus peel so yeah how do you test these things or do you just, uh, are you small enough that you can just give it a whirl? Yeah, it, it, we're small enough we can give it a whirl, but also it's like looking at the COA and kind of cross-referencing that and kind of, there's always a first batch and never 100% sure if it's going to come out, but... Uh, and it yeah. comes to wood notes and we throw it in barrels. <laughs> then we throw it in barrels, no. yeah. <laughs> no, that's not true. Not all the time. <laughs> when you look at those COAs, you know, what, do you, what are the things that stand out to you as a brewer and what do you then uh, adjust around? Uh, you know, what, uh, what, are your, uh, what are some of the key factors that you're always looking at? Yeah, the, um, the friability, the moisture content, the, um, the enzyme potential right, in the malt. Right. Yeah, that's the, biggest, that's the biggest one that I look at. So make sure that it's actually going to be able to, uh, you know, to convert. Yeah. 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 Cool. Cool. Um, any, maybe we'll zoom out a little bit and talk about, you know, big picture with Arizona wilderness. 
um, number of years under the, uh, you know for the Arizona Wilderness brand. Nick, this is your second turn at you're back at Arizona Wilderness now. Yeah, Brad, you're uh, you know enjoying your nine months into yeah. head, head brewer for Arizona Wilderness. You're embarking on a, a new brewery. Uh, um, to kind of add production capability yeah. here so to be able to make and package more beer. Um, what's on the near-term horizon for Arizona Wilderness? What's the long-term vision? Uh, and um, what, what does everyone here at Arizona Wilderness hope to accomplish You know, in five years? I mean, the big thing is, um, from a production standpoint, is getting our new facility up and running and operating. Um, We've been brewing out of this brew pub for ten years, so it's uh, it's seen some time and it's had some some wear and tear put on it. Um, as a company overall, like we're not looking to take over the world, um, but we do want to expand within Arizona and kind of spread the message um, of sustainability and conservation through beer as much as we can, um, while still providing a, f- a quality product and quality experience at our, our two locations. Well, that. Sounds like a great place to bring this to a close. Choose G&D Chillers on your next expansion or brewery startup and receive one free year of remote control and monitoring. Pro Brew's engineering team prides itself on providing true customized turnkey solutions. Old Orchard is the go-to source for fruit-forward ingredients for some of the biggest names in the craft brewing landscape. Omega Yeast Diacetyl Knockout Series is comprised of eight familiar yeast strains engineered to knock out the formation of diacetyl before it starts. ABS Commercial are proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and preventative maintenance parts to brewers across the country. Secure your brewery accelerator spot now at breweworkshop.com. SS Brewtech is dedicated to an engineering-first approach to brewery equipment and powers R&D at some of the world's greatest breweries. And build consistency with a reverse osmosis system from uswatersystems.com to start with the same water every time. If you've enjoyed this episode and any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, uh, and support us and uh, our mission to bring great brewing content to you both through the magazine and through the podcast. Uh, And of course, uh, you can read what we say about things like Jitterbug Perfume, a perfect 100 and one of our beers of the year for 2023. Um, Nick, Brad, thanks for joining me. Brad, if people want to learn more about Arizona Wilderness, where do they find you on uh, in real life and out there on the internet? Um, the main place I'm active with work stuff is probably Twitter. Um, so Miles underscore Bradley. Um, for Arizona Wilderness is um, ArizonaWilderness.com or our Instagram, which if you just search Arizona Wilderness on there, you'll find it. You'll learn all about us. Fantastic. We're coming right here to the Brew Pub in Gilbert yeah. or a downtown Phoenix tap room and uh, soon to be uh, another uh, production facility. Yeah. Or a wood note cellar too when yeah, we, when we open it up. Please come by. <laughs> right here where we are now. Anyway, thanks. It was great talking with you guys about brewing. Cheers. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.